Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. And because our Lord is so resourceful, He doesn't always do what we expect immediately or in the way we think He'll do it or should do it. Why? He's working more than what we're thinking about and concerned with. He's trying to teach his disciples some things. He's trying to demonstrate some things to this woman and, and let her faith that is very real flower so that it's even more beautiful to behold. Starting in verse 21 of Matthew chapter 15, we begin a new message from Pastor Sam entitled, A Faith the Lord Rewards. We begin by looking at the Canaanite woman who came to the Lord asking for healing for her demon-possessed daughter. And Jesus' response is not what we would expect, and that gives us a wonderful learning opportunity, just as it did his disciples and the Canaanite woman. Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 15. We pick up today at verse 21. The passage before us presents us with a bit of a paradox, and, and, and I found something, oh, it's been around for a while out of the Sunday School Times, mentioning some scriptural paradoxes related directly to our Lord and His ministry. He who is the bread of life began His ministry hungering. He who is the water of life ended His ministry thirsting. He was weary, yet he is our rest. He paid tribute, and yet he is the king. He was called a devil, but cast out devils. He prayed, and yet he hears our prayers. He wept, and he dries our tears. He was sold for 30 pieces of silver and redeemed the world. He gave, or he was led as a lamb to the slaughter and is the good shepherd. He died and gave his life, and by dying, destroyed death. Well, the paradox that we're considering together today has to do with how Jesus deals with this woman who comes to him at a time of real extremity and pain, a great need, presents it to him, and he kind of takes her through a process that, well, it's challenging to say the least. In order to really appreciate what we're going to study together today, though, you need to know that we're at a crossroads in Jesus' ministry. And chapter 15 is one of those chapters where we see a great change. Up to this point, in fact, up to verse 20 of chapter 15, Jesus has been ministering primarily in Jewish territory. He's been in and around the Sea of Galilee. He's been up and down the coast, but he's been in the general region where Israel was settled. Now he moves into Gentile territory. It's a short season, about a six-month period. When he returns back to Jerusalem, he'll be headed toward the cross. And what happens is in chapter 15, he begins to broaden the picture, as it were. And we saw in our study of the first part of chapter 15 that Jesus began breaking down cultural barriers between Jew and Gentile. Paul fully got all of this. He'll later say, hey, in Christ Jesus, there is no Jew or Gentile, male or female, no slave or free. He's not saying those distinctions no longer exist socially or, or physically or practically. No, but spiritually, he's saying, man, when you stand before God, he's not saying, was male or female, uh, Jew or Gentile. It wasn't really an issue with him. But, but what he's doing is he's breaking down those barriers. How does he go about it? Well, he took a very simple 
straightforward situation. Some of the religious leaders were troubled because his disciples were eating with unwashed hands. Not that they hadn't washed up, but they hadn't washed ceremonially. And so he ends up telling them and teaching them that it's not what goes into a man that defiles a man, but what comes out of a man defiles him. Now, this was revolutionary thought for his followers and for those religious people of that day, because all the way back in the book of Leviticus, relatively old book in the Old Testament, one of the first five books of Moses, God had given some very strict dietary laws. You can eat this, you can't eat this, you can do this, you can't do that. It went way beyond diet, but there was a lot to do with diet. And what Jesus is now saying is those divisions, they were temporary. And he had reasons for them, some of them physical and practical, others just, well, in a very real way, God wanted his people to be different and to appear different. I said it in that order because we tend to think appear different and, well, maybe be different. No, he wanted them to be different and he wanted everyone to know there was a difference. So some of the things he forbid them to eat or to do, well, there was nothing wrong with the food itself. There was not necessarily something wrong with the activity. But he was saying, I want to make a separation. I want to make a division. I want people, when they see you, to know you belong to me. Because of the things you do, the things you wear, the way places you go, the, the way you talk, the things you eat. He wanted there to be a visible, tangible, practical witness that they were his people. Now he's beginning to reach out beyond the Jews to the Gentiles. And this is going to take his disciples some time to really get a hold of even. They're going to struggle with this transition. Now, the Old Testament was filled with prophecy that said it would be to the Jew and the Gentile that God loved all of the world. In fact, John 3.16, not in the Old Testament, tells us God so loved the world. Not just his people or not just the Jews. But, but he loved the world and he, and he demonstrated that love by sending Jesus to die for the sins of the world. So the religious leaders of Israel, they thought God's for us and the, not the Gentiles. Even Jesus' own disciples would have struggled with the idea that God was for the Gentiles. He's breaking down those barriers. Well, we pick up then in verse 21 and you'll see how important it is that uh, they grasp this concept. That it's not what's going into a man that defiles him, but what's coming out of a man that defiles him. Jesus went from there, departing to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Now that's Gentile territory. Behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region, crying out to him and saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he answered her not a word, and his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. This woman comes to Jesus in the midst of her desperation. She's no doubt heard of him, and people are saying, Hey, back there in Jerusalem and in the surrounding regions, man, he was healing people and, and the lame were walking and, and the blind were seeing and demons were being cast out. So she thinks, this guy can help me. This guy can change my situation. This guy can free my little daughter from the bondage to Satan that she's in. And so she comes to Jesus. You need to know 
There were four things working against her. And if you're a person that feels like, man, the world's against me or circumstances are stacked against me, she really came with with four strikes against her. The first being that she was a woman. And a woman in that day, in that culture, well, they were really treated more like property than people. And if you think we have a long way to go in America, and I'm not saying we're don't have ground to cover and and, uh, equalizing some things that may not be equal, you need to know that the Bible itself and the gospel itself, that's the message that brings unity to this idea of, of male and female equal before the Lord. It's a biblical concept. In fact, when Paul wrote that in Christ Jesus, there's neither male or female or slave or free, Man, that first century writing, it was revolutionary thought. You can go into all of human history. You'll never read such a thing until Paul. Why? Because people have always seen those distinctions as more than they should be. Now, we're starting to have a problem in America where we're seeing them as some ways less than they should be. Guys and gals, we are different, and and I'm a married guy and grateful for the difference. Happy to be with my wonderful wife. I'm not saying there are no differences, but when we stand before God, he doesn't say, well, you should really talk to your husband and have him talk to me. You know, no, she goes straight to God. In fact, if you want to get a prayer answered, you ought to have her pray for you more than me, because I'm certain that he'd rather hang out with her than me. But the bottom line is that in their generation, women were treated poorly. I mean, that is just a, a way understatement. They were treated badly. And so she comes being a woman. Second strike against her, she comes and she's a Gentile. But not just a Gentile, as bad as that was. No, she was a Canaanite. And if you're familiar at all with the history of Israel, you need to know that the Canaanites Well, they were doomed to destruction. They were the people, when the children of Israel came out, they're in the book of Exodus, from the bondage in Egypt, and they were moving toward Canaan, they were the people that God said, I want them all destroyed. Don't leave one of them alive. Kill their animals, kill the people, knock down their altars, don't leave anyone or anything. Why? Because it was such a perverse and decadent society that their worship involved things like sacrificing their children on the altar to Baal or all sorts of prostitution and immorality and and idolatry in worship itself. And so God's saying, I don't want you to be infected with all that. I want those people exterminated completely. When you understand that, by the way, it helps you You get a little bit of a sense that it wasn't just that God hated Canaanites and chose Israel to wipe them out. No, it's God reached out to the Canaanites and they continually for decades and centuries rejected that and rejected him. And because of their idolatry, because of their perversity and their immorality, he said, wipe them out lest they infect you, unless you end up immoral and idolatrous and all of those things. Well, there's a sense then in the fact that this woman is actually alive physically because of Israel's failure to completely wipe out her ancestors. Had they been faithful and wiped out all the Canaanites, she wouldn't even exist. But there's something else along those lines, even more provocative and and interesting. And that is that 
Gentiles came to know the Lord spiritually in part because of Israel's failure in idolatry. You see, God had chosen them not because they were the best or the greatest or, hey, I really like these guys and don't like those guys. No, he chose Israel because he said, here's a nation that is so insignificant and so nothing. I'll make something great of it. Well, actually, when he chose Abraham, there was no nation. He picked the man and birthed the nation through him. And then he blessed that nation so he could have an earthly witness to his goodness and grace and glory. And his idea, his purpose being that all the world would be touched by Israel. Well, they were abused by Israel, hated by Israel, rejected by Israel, but they weren't the witnesses God called them to be. So he set them aside, as we read in the book of Romans and in others in the New Testament. He set them aside for a season. The church is birthed, and he begins to do the same thing through us. The world around us, they need a witness of God's life-transforming power. That's why he says, not many mighty, not many noble, not many... No, he doesn't pick us and didn't pick us because of how wonderful we were but because it would be obvious to everyone if our lives changed that, hey, God's really working in those people. And you have friends and family that used to think you were just on a religious trip, and now they realize, no, this person's for real. I mean, even if they don't believe in the God you serve, they know you really believe in Him, and you're being, transforming, being transformed by Him, becoming more like Him. And so God chose Israel to be a witness unto him. And he's chosen us for the same purpose. And he warns us, by the way, to be careful in the book of Romans. Because he says, hey, if the natural branches were cut off, you who've been grafted in, be careful. Lest you fall into the same idolatry, the same stupidity, the same immorality that they did. You too can be disciplined and dealt with. Well, in any case, she's got these strikes against her. First, a woman. Secondly, a Gentile and a Canaanite, no less. The third thing, she's rejected by the disciples. And one of the things I've grown to appreciate about these disciples is their wonderful consistency. You see, when there was a hungry multitude, they said, send the people away. And now there's a hurting woman and a demon-possessed daughter. And he's like, could you send this woman away? She's bugging the heck out of us, Lord. And... Truly, that word when it says she was crying after them, it means shrieking after them. She was crying out. Why? She was in agony for her daughter. She was in... Listen, you who have children, you totally get this. You who don't, someday, hope you get them and, and, and you will understand. The connection between father and child or mother and child is so close, so intimate, so personal that there's no way you can suffer without your parents suffering. There's no way if you're going through mental or moral or ethical or spiritual problems, emotional problems, that your parents can just sit there passively like, well, this is, you know, they'll work it out, it'll all be fine. Not in something, unless something's really wrong with your parents. And you who are parents, you know. When your child grieves, you're grieving too. When they struggle, you suffer. That's because you're connected to them in a very real way. Well, that's what was going on with her. And so as she comes, this woman, this, this Canaanite, this, this gal who the disciples just think, man, do we have to put up with this forever? Lord, send her away. 
And then the fourth strike, she's actually rebuffed by the Lord. And this is the paradox of all of this. Up to this point, it appears that Jesus never turned anyone away who came with a need. Well, he's not going to turn her away, by the way. He's going to meet her need. He's going to answer the prayer of her heart. And he's willing and wanting to do that here as well. But I want you to see that sometimes there's a process. And because our Lord is so resourceful, he doesn't always do what we expect immediately or in the way we think he'll do it or should do it. Why? He's working more than what we're thinking about and concerned with. He's trying to teach his disciples some things. He's trying to demonstrate some things to this woman and and let her faith that is very real flower so that it's even more beautiful to behold. Well, we'll see there are yet some other positive and wonderful things that we can look at. And, And so here he says, as she came saying, have mercy on me. Catch that. Mercy on me. It was mercy to her because her daughter was so loved by her and and so suffering as a result of the possession of the demons. Well, the Lord, she says, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, a messianic title, acknowledging that, yes, he's the Jews' savior, the Jews' messiah, but, but she being a Gentile, she still felt this man will meet my need touch my life, make the difference. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. But he, first of all, we read there in verse 23, answered her not a word. Now, I pondered that for a while because I've been in situations, and probably most of you have, where you cry out to the Lord and it just seems like nothing's happening. He's not answering. You don't, you don't know what he's going to do. You know what you're hoping and wanting him to do. And it just seems like heaven is silent. But you need to know that God is always listening. And if he hears our prayers, he's promised he'll answer those petitions. He'll deal with those issues. And so what's going on? Well, I began to look back through the Old Testament and through the New. And, and I found a whole lot of places where people were crying out to the Lord, petitioning the Lord for something the Lord absolutely intended to do for them. Abraham cries out for a son. God, you've promised to make me a mighty nation. Where is it? I don't even have a kid. Five years, ten years. The time is going by. Still no child. And so what happens is God delays sometimes for his own reasons for his own purposes. Sometimes we can make sense of it. Other times we never get it. But he delays because he's doing something that we're unaware of, that we can't really see, that we're not making sense of. You know, when he got word that Jesus, that is, that Lazarus, his friend, was desperately ill at the point of death, he intentionally delayed four days. Now, when he finally gets to the gravesite of Lazarus, Both Mary and Martha come out and say, if you'd been here, our brother wouldn't have died. You see, it's not really an accusation. It's words of faith. But they're saying, hey, if you'd made it, if you'd gotten here, they didn't know what the delay was or why he wasn't there sooner. But listen, Jesus could have just spoken the word and healed that, that, that guy from a distance. He intentionally let Lazarus die. Now, From a human perspective, if you and I were there, if we were friends of Mary and Martha, and we knew Jesus could have 
gotten there and he could have healed Lazarus, we would think, man, what's wrong? Doesn't he really love them? Doesn't he really care? Doesn't he know the grief and the agony and the sorrow of losing your brother? Yeah, he understood it all. He related to it. But he let Lazarus die so that he could come and raise him from the dead. And if we were there and saw that, we'd say, that's perfect. That's amazing. I mean, how much better raised from the dead than just raised from the bed? I mean, he was sick and now he's, he's resurrected. I mean, a greater miracle, a greater demonstration of Jesus' life-transforming power. And no one on the other side of resurrection is going to say, why did you let me go through all that, Lord? We say that down here, don't we? Lord, why aren't you answering? Why are you allowing this suffering? Why are you letting us go through this? And if silent, well, if heaven seems silent, know this, the Lord is listening and the Lord's going to answer. And here's another thing. He's going to do the right thing. He's going to do the best thing. You can pray, Lord, not my will but yours, and be absolutely sure his will will be better than anything you could have thought of in the first place. And for the things I can't make sense of, and there are many, for those things that happen in our lives and in the lives of our family and friends and in our fellowship, there are things that I just shake my head and I say, Lord, I just don't get it. I just don't get it. But I don't have to get it. When I'm confronted with things I don't understand, I fall back on what I do understand. And I understand that God is perfect. And everything he does is perfect. And his timetable's perfect. And his works are perfect. And so she comes and she's stressed. She comes and she's heartbroken. And she cries out and Jesus is silent. Now what happens is we begin to see her faith. And the title of this message, by the way, I don't think I mentioned, A Faith the Lord Rewards. We're going to see that she has real faith and it's rightly placed, but it's a developing faith like all of ours. And Jesus is going to draw her out. He is going to demonstrate for his disciples, though he was just rejected by the religious leaders, that there are people, Jew and Gentile, that exercise real faith in him and are rewarded accordingly. Now, the Lord always rewards those who come to him in faith. He always rewards those who come to him in faith. And there are three things about her faith that I want you to see. And, and hopefully, your faith will, you will experience these same realities in, in your exercising of faith. First of all, I want you to see her faith was a focused faith. Her faith was in him. She came to him, Lord, son of David. And, and when he was silent and the disciples tried to rebuke her, he rebuffed her with the silence. The disciples rebuked her publicly. Send her away. She cries out after us. And then he says, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. Now, a couple things. Her faith was focused. It's so important. The Bible says, he who comes to God must believe that he is. Is what? Is God. That he is the true and living God. And that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So she comes, believing he's the Lord, 
She meets the first criteria. And then she absolutely believes that he is going to reward her for seeking him, for exercising faith in him. She meets both criteria, but there's not immediate answer. She comes and she worships. Now, here's why this is so critical, that our faith is focused on Jesus. He is the author and finisher of our faith. And there are a lot of people today who have faith in something or someone besides the Lord. Please join us tomorrow as we complete the message of Faith the Lord Rewards. It's important to see how the Lord rewards this woman's faith, but it's also important to see how her faith plays out and causes her to respond to the Lord's rebuke. In Luke 18, read the first eight verses about the parable of the persistent widow. Jesus says that the Lord will bring justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night. It's just a question of their faith. Do they have the faith to do this? The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.